Today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show, we're going to take a look at the Tales of the Valiant Game Master Guide Kickstarter. We're also going to look at the Level Up Advanced 5e Gate Pass Gazette Kickstarter and how this could be very valuable for you, even if you're not that interested in the Gate Pass Gazette itself. But this is a really great way to get involved in A5e. I'm going to talk about today's big commentary is going to be on the topic of what is 5e? I'm also going to look at today's GM tip is going to be on using the eight steps at your table. And we're going to cover more questions from January 2024 for the Patreon Q&A. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk to you about all things in tabletop role-playing games. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to all kinds of awesome stuff, like the City of Arches Sourcebook, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, a whole bunch of tools to help you run your game, a dedicated Discord server, a dedicated the, the Patreon Q&A, and all kinds of other stuff that you get for being a patron of Sly Flourish. It is a really, really good deal. Please check it out. You'll find a link in the show notes. And to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your outstanding support. We have a couple of interesting Kickstarters going on. Tales of the Valiant is a variant of 5e being developed by Kobold Press. If not, they are one of the largest. I don't know who the largest is. Like MCDM is really big. It's hard to say who the largest producer of fifth edition material is. But Kobold Press is one of the largest and most consistent publishers of fifth edition material. And they put out their version of 5e called Tales of the Valiant. They did the Kickstarter earlier last year. And the books themselves uh, are going to be available in May. They had 10,000 backers for that Kickstarter. And now they are running the Tales of the Valiant Game Master's Guide kickstarter the number one thing i want you to understand is this isn't an example of Cobalt press saying well we were going to do a three book set but we're going to make you do another kickstarter for the third book the first two books can run all of tales of the valiant on their own this is much more like the old school style of the game master's guide being gm advice advanced gm advice it doesn't for example include magic items in it if it does i think it includes like some artifacts but it doesn't it isn't a core book it is a book that helps game masters run their games more effectively. It is still a very good book. And I guess another point I should make is I helped write this book. I wrote about, I wrote a bunch of different sections for the game master's guide for tales of the valiant. So I am a biased. Uh, I'm definitely a biased agent in this. I, I, pretty sure i'd have bought it anyway i've bought lots of other Cobalt press stuff that i didn't write for so i almost certainly would have bought it but i did uh write a bunch of sections in here and if you look at the table of contents i don't think it will be hard for you if you followed any of the work that i do i don't think it will be hard for you to figure out which sections i wrote for tales of the valley but it was really good it was really exciting to write i was very very happy to do so and it was a great privilege to be able to put my material in this book but this book is definitely a, you could almost call it like the advanced game master's guide because the core books are going to have enough material on them that they don't apparently like Cobalt Press is beginning to hit all the time. Like, why are you trying to sell me a third book? Now, I also don't want to know exactly what you're complaining about because it's not like you'd have gotten this one for free. You'd still have had to pay for it in the other Kickstarter too. So the fact that, I mean, I guess shipping would suck, right? But generally speaking, you would, if you're going to buy three books, you're going to buy three books. Should you buy it? Of course you should buy it. I wrote, I wrote for it. Why would, why would I tell you otherwise? Do you need it? No, you don't need it. But it still has a lot of really interesting things. They have a free downloadable preview. And when you click it, you just get it. Thank you, Cobalt Press. Thank you for the... Look, I didn't have to put in an email address or anything. I get my, my Tales of the Valiant Game Master's Guide preview. 
So great big, great big book, lots of sections. It's funny because I looked at the outline here and it's like, oh yeah, this is all good. Yeah, it's not bad. And then I was like, oh wait, there's a whole other page of stuff here. All right. So it's got lots and lots of different things uh, that are going to be included in this book and a lot of exciting optional rules, lots of different ways to run your game. You know, you can see like, hey, there's a section here on secrets and clues. I wonder who wrote that. So it was really exciting to write about. If you want to hear more about the specific stuff that I wrote for, I was on with uh, Kendo, who is the community manager, or I guess the video manager over at Cobalt Press, uh, had an interview with myself and one of the other authors. And I will link to that in the show notes. It was a really fun hour long conversation. Where we talked about what we did and how we came to it and stuff like that. I, I talked about like the minion rules that I, that I wrote for here. I did the building expanded that the combat encounter expanded section, there's already combat encounter guidelines that are going to be in the monster vault, which I wrote that part of it. I didn't write the monster vault. I wrote that section of the monster vault and I wrote the expanded version of that. So both of those are in there. Encounter templates, settings and terrain. I wrote that those sections in there. A few other stuff that I wrote. So about 10,000 words of, of this book are mine. And I am all over it. I actually got the collector's cover because I was like, ooh, I think it'd be really fun to have the collector's cover. It is kind of neat that they have, look at the, the art is great. Look at the art, man, good stuff. They have monster templates. And I, somebody, I was just doing my video on Forge of Foes and somebody said, oh, did you take the monster templates from Forge of Foes? I didn't write this section. This is an example of how people can come from different angles and write different things. I didn't, I had nothing to do with the monster template section, but I'm not surprised it's there because I think it's a really good idea. And you will see that like, how do you make a skeleton? How do you make a zombie? You know, how do you make these other things? I hope they can expand on this significantly to offer lots of different ways to uh, make your monsters, make your monsters bigger. They have a dragon lich template, for example, and then stat blocks that exist here. Hey, my mom is on. Hi, mom. It's nice when my mom shows up. So looks really cool. Uh, I'm excited about it. They're doing a lot of promotion for it, a lot of videos on it. And you can take a look at the table of contents to see it if, if it is the book for you. Again, this kind of gets into my whole topic that I think it's really interesting that 5e is going to have all of these different things coming from those other sides. So if you are diving deep into 5e and you want to see lots of stuff, there's lots of different books that you could get now. We're going to have like four different GM guides by the end of the year that are like big, I don't know if this one's coming out by the end of the year. This one might take until next year, but we're going to have four different GM guides. That's pretty, that's pretty substantial. And we can pick and choose the stuff that we like from whatever books we like, just like we do with our monster books and just like we do with other stuff. So, uh, so that's very cool. I'm excited for that. Meanwhile, on another variant of 5e that's coming up, I, I had this big discussion. I had it online about 5e isn't D&D, that D&D is one branch of lots of versions of 5e. And people are like, no, you're wrong. 5e is in D&D. And I'm like, well, what about level up advanced 5e? And they're like, well, that's based on D&D. I'm like, no, it has their own SRD. And they're like, ah, right. But like, we do have all these new versions of 5e that are coming along. And from a practical standpoint, they're all separate and they're all different. And we can use whatever parts of them we want. And I think that's fantastic. I think it's fantastic. If you're not into 5e, that's cool, right? You don't have to be into everything. I'm not into everything, but I love 5e and I'm totally happy to have this giant library of different sets of material coming in for 5e. One of which is the Gate Pass Gazette. Gate Pass Gazette is all of the monthly stuff that EN World Publishing publishes for Level Up Advanced 5e, their variant of 5e, all of it fully compatible with 5e. And they package it all together into one big book. 
that's great. And I backed it because I'm like, hey, I want that because it has tons and tons and tons of stuff in it. And that's really great. You know, all, all the stuff, 30 exploration challenges, 29 archetypes, 14 cultures, five heritages, 10 backgrounds, three destinies, four feats, three combat traditions, 14 magic items, 20 monsters, yada, 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 tons and tons of stuff you get. But what's really valuable about this Kickstarter is I think it is probably the most cost-effective way to order physical copies of the Level Up Advanced 5e books that you want. Because you can order them as all as you can order them all as add-ons in this, and that these books go out of print. So there are they go out of print and they're not always in whatever warehouse you're in. So the easiest way to get your physical versions of the Level Up Advanced 5e books is to back one of their Kickstarters and get in here because they're doing big batches of them at a time. And you can you can kind of pick all the ones that you want and get them shipped to you as part of that Kickstarter. It means you may have to wait. It doesn't, you know, it's not the same as going to their store and ordering it and having it, you know, three days later. You know, it, it might take time. But if you're in an area where it's, the cost for shipping is really, really high or they're out of print and you can't get them or something else. This is a good way to be able to order a big chunk of their books and get them all at once. You can order five, six hardcovers from them in one big batch and probably pay the least shipping you would have to pay. So really neat stuff. They, this is the second Gate, Gate Pass Gazette. They did another one. I actually ordered both because I don't think I have the original Gate Pass Gazette. So, and I'm a, I'm a sucker for this kind of stuff. I love to get supplementary material. But yeah, here you can see where you can order like the PDF collection, 90 pounds, which is like $120 or something like that. Gets you all of Level Up Advanced 5e and the Gate Pass Gazette books. Or even 150 for all 10 products, which includes like the Dungeon Dovers Guide and all sorts of other stuff in PDF. But then you can also get the physical versions, the big the big physical version package. This looks like 200 pounds because you all the PDFs and the physical books for all of Level Up Advanced 5e, Trials and Treasure, Monstrous Menagerie, plus the Gate Pass Gazette books. Or then all of the books, including like To Save a Kingdom, The Zeitgeist, all the other stuff. You probably want to, oh, and look, it comes with cards and a GM screen. That's kind of neat. But that's pretty costly, right? What's that? 400, yeah, 400 pounds. It's like $500. That's, that's a lot to spend in an RPG. I get it. So pretty neat. And I'm excited for it. I just, I, you know, I, I will say I, the more I have dove into level up advanced 5e, the, the, the more interested in it I am that I had, I was a slow, I, I cooked it slow in my brain that I started with the monstrous menagerie because I knew Paul Hughes had written it and I liked it very much and I used it and it was my favorite product of 2022 at the beginning of 2023, right? When I did my, what's my favorite product of the previous year, the monstrous menagerie was my favorite product um, because I loved it as a, as a monster book. Uh, now I have been diving a lot into trials and treasure, which is their GM focused book, their version of like a, a, a game master's guide. And love i love that book too like it's they're really really good it has like it has the exact stuff i would want the book to have and none of the stuff that i don't and and it's got really really good ideas for this i did a spotlight of it previously um so you can take a look at that spotlight but even after having done that i'm i dove into it more and more and now i'm just starting to dive into the actual adventurer's guide uh with an intention of uh seeing if my players are interested in running with level up advanced 5e instead of 2024 D or 2014 D&D for our next campaign. So I want to try that out and see what that's like. And now I'm starting to dive into that. But so far, I really like that book too. And I've talked to many people who really like that book. It's got lots of really interesting stuff. I have the dungeon guide, the dungeon delvers guide. It's been sitting on my shelf for a long time. And I just, you know, I've been very busy and I really haven't, Paul Hughes wrote this one too. And I really haven't dove into this as much as I would like to as well, but I have high hopes and high expectations for that as well. So I really feel like 
this Kickstarter in particular is a great way to dive into Level Up Advanced 5e. In particular, get the probably the best rates that you're going to get on shipping for the physical versions of the books, which are great big meaty books that are shipped all over the world. So check out the Level Up Advanced 5e Gate Pass Gazette annual in the show notes below. I don't even know if they're below. I don't know if the notes are below. I don't know where your notes are. I'm not the boss of your notes. You can put your notes wherever you want, but wherever those notes are, they will probably have a link to that. What is 5e? What does 5e mean? When we talk about 5e in the world of tabletop role-playing games, I don't know that we all have a good understanding of what 5e actually means. So in this video, I'm going to talk about what 5e means, where it came from, how it's changed, and what it means for our games now. I have two goals uh, for this video. Goal number one is if you are new to D&D, if you are new to tabletop role-playing games, and you are seeing things like something being 5e compatible or that something is 5e, what does that actually mean? What does it mean in your relationship with playing D&D or playing other tabletop role-playing games? What does that mean? And I also want to talk about it from the point of view of existing TTRPG hobbyists, those of us who have been playing this game for a while, to understand what 5e means today and how that has changed from what 5e has meant in the past. So those are the two real goals that I have for this video. And this actually came because recently the Tales of the Valiant Game Master Guide had Tales of the Valiant Game Master's Guide 5e. And some patrons of Sly Flourish said, what, is, what does that even mean? They were confused by the fact that it said 5e because they said, I thought this was a Tales of the Valiant Game Master's Guide. Is this just a general 5e game master's guide? And that led to a discussion of, well, what does that even mean? Isn't Tales of the Valiant 5e? Is it a different thing than 5e? Is this for people? Can you use this with other variants of 5e? How did, what does this all mean? So I thought this is a good example. Now, of course, the easy answer to why it says 5e on the end is search engine optimization. This is a way for Cobalt Press to make sure that people find Tales of the Valiant when people aren't searching for Tales of the Valiant, but are searching for 5e. But if you dig into that a little bit, the reason why they're searching for 5e is for something in particular, which is they are interested in products that are compatible with Dungeons and Dragons and compatible with other versions of 5e. And that's kind of what 5e means now. It is 5e means compatible with Dungeons and Dragons, the existing version of Dungeons and Dragons, which is the 2014 version of Dungeons and Dragons. We still don't know what the 2024 version of Dungeons and Dragons is going to look like, but we're pretty sure they claim to be 5e compatible as well. But we're also going to talk today about what compatibility means, which is probably the bigger piece of this to dissect. That when you talk, when something says they are 5e compatible, what can you generally expect that that means when you're running it? So this video should hopefully be useful to you if you are new to D&D, if you are new to tabletop role-playing games, and you're starting to see people referring to something as either 5e or 5th edition compatible. And if you've been in this hobby for a while, I want to talk to you about how I feel like 5e has changed over the past year, but also um, probably for the future and even how it's changed from what we were used to with 5e compatibility to begin with. So where, where did 5e originally come from? The term 5e stands for 5th edition, which means the 5th edition of Dungeons & Dragons in particular. That in 2014, Wizards of the Coast published the three Dungeons & Dragons core books, the Player's Handbook, the Monster Manual, and the Dungeon Master's Guide. And all of those are referred to as the 5th edition of Dungeons & Dragons. Now, if you look at the Dungeons & Dragons book, the only place where it actually says 5th edition is on the back. I have one. Where's my copy? Right over here. 
right? On the back of the book, it says, when you're ready for even more, expand your adventures with the fifth edition Dungeon Master's Guide and Monster Manual. Now, that's the only place that it actually references fifth edition because Wizards is not interested in reminding you that there's a whole bunch of old versions of D&D, including first, second, third, 3.5, and fourth edition, and OD&D, and the white box, and a whole bunch of other. They don't want you to really worry about that. They want you to just buy this one. This is the Dungeons & Dragons Player's Handbook. That's what they want you to say. Now, of course... This year, they're going to have a new version of this, and they're going to say the same thing, and they're different books. So what does that mean? That's why I think this video is important. So fifth edition means fifth edition of version of D&D, but it's starting to mean something else as well, and that is because back in 2016, Wizards of the Coast released the rule set for the fifth edition of D&D in a thing known as the 5.1 system reference document and made it available under a license called the open gaming license i am not going to get into the controversy of what happened with the open gaming license there's a million videos that could talk about what happened but for for the sake of this conversation they released those rules in the open which meant people could write fifth edition compatible products without getting wizards of the coast permission without paying a license fee to wizards of the coast without having wizards of the coast change the agreement of the license in order to ruin the products again i'm not going to the ogl talk there's a whole big conversation of what happened last year that's not relevant to this conversation so that's what 5e meant before and that's where 5e came from and what that meant before was that 5e compatible material was compatible with the 2014 version of dungeons and dragons that's that's what it meant and that's pretty much what it still means that if you go and you see a product that claims to be fifth edition compatible your expectation is that it is compatible with the 2014 version of dungeons and dragons but that has now started to change. And it changed in particular because not only is the 5.1 system reference document available under the open gaming license, it is now also available under the Creative Commons license, which means that anybody can write a commercial, commercially available version of fifth edition, including the entire game system, without paying a license fee to Wizards of the Coast, without Wizards of the Coast having any kind of control over it, all that sort of stuff. So in these recent days, we've seen other publishers putting out their own full variants of fifth edition compatible role-playing games. An example is Ian Publishing's Level Up Advanced 5e, which I've spent a lot of time talking about the show. I think it's really outstanding, but they are not the only one. There's a company that made Fate Forge, a whole variant of it with its own style and its own unique take on 5e. MT Black has his Iskandar Player's Handbook, which is a complete player's handbook tuned around his own city of Iskandar, built using core fifth edition mechanics. So now we are starting to see entire sets of books that are intended to completely replace the three core books of the player's handbook the monster manual and the dungeon master's guide uh, one that is coming out this year is tales of the valiant by cobalt press cobalt press was one of the largest publishers of fifth edition material compatible with D&D. uh last year they uh kick-started and ran and i think this may they're coming out the tales of the valiant core books which include an adventurer's guide and a monster vault and then they're running well, as of this video running the kickstarter for the game master's guide again their own complete take of 5e so for me that means 5e is different now than it was because now 5e doesn't just mean compatible with the 2014 version of DD. it also means compatible with these other versions of 5e and that those products are compatible with the other products of 5e so when tales of the valiant says they have a 5e game master's guide when they say Tales of Valiant Game Master's Guide 5e. What that means is, in theory, this Game Master's Guide will be useful whether you're wanting Level Up Advanced 5e or the 2014 version of D&D or theoretically the 2024 version of D&D or Fate Forge or whatever. And 
that it's it's going to get messy. So what does compatibility actually mean? When something claims to be 5e compatible, what does that actually mean? Well, one thing is that it's not a binary state, that something isn't 100% compatible or 0% compatible. There are degrees of compatibility depending on what you are what kind of product you're talking about and which system you're integrating it with. They're going to be different degrees. My biggest recommendation is to hang on with a loose grip. That don't expect that everything is going to slide in absolutely perfectly and that we as gms are in control of our games and we're probably going to have to finagle things a little bit even when we're bringing in things that should be generally compatible that said there are some things that we can have a general expectation for full compatibility when we see something as being 5e compatible an example is we would expect that they're using all of the core rules they still have difficulty classes they still do d20 checks initiative how combat works the general flow of power all of that is we can and we can have expectation is going to be the same the same with like character levels and what character levels means we we'll probably have the same expectation across all of our games now if something is changing what power level a level 12 is that's probably not really compatible monsters are almost certainly compatible in fact monsters are probably the most crunchy bit of material that publishers have been putting out for 5e over the last 10 years you, you we've seen thousands and thousands of monsters and monster books from other publishers other than wizards of the coast have been very very popular over the past 10 years so monsters we can generally have an expectation that monsters are going to be compatible now that said the design of monsters can change over time and the style of monster that you might see in the 2014 monster manual compared to even other dungeons and dragons books published in recent times has changed significantly spellcasters now operate differently than they did in 2014 than in products you might have picked up in the last couple of years for example they have a lot of like arcane blasts and things like that if you look at the 2014 monster manual and compare it to the 2022 monsters of the multiverse book how spellcasters operate is completely different in the same way if you look at the level up advanced 5e monstrous menagerie and how it uses spellcasters that is also different however them being different does not mean they are not compatible they still all work you just have to change how you operate your monsters when you're looking at them but the, the compatibility is still there so monsters you can be pretty confident if somebody's writing a fifth edition compatible monster that it's going to be compatible doesn't mean it's going to be perfect doesn't mean it'd be well balanced doesn't mean it works right but it does mean that generally speaking the publisher who put it out has an expectation that you would be playing it in a fifth edition game and that should exist across whatever version of 5e you happen to be playing if you're playing level of advanced 5e or you're playing tales of the valiant or you're playing 2014 D&D &D, or you're playing 2024 D&D &D, any of whatever you know whatever version you're playing you should generally have an expectation that a monster is a monster is a monster magic items are the same way magic items are nice encapsulated chunks of mechanics there will be power variants within rarity of course but generally speaking you can assume a magic item written by one publisher for 5e is compatible with pretty much all of the versions of 5e that you would running same with spells it doesn't mean that there's not lots of different spells and some spells are overpowered and some spells are underpowered or that spells don't operate well or sometimes something they operate really well Generally speaking, if a book says that they are a fifth edition book full of spells like Cobalt Press's Deep Magic 1 and 2, you have an expectation that you'd be able to take those Deep Magic 1 and 2 spells and operate them in any of your fifth edition compatible games. 2014 D&D, &D, 2024 D&D, Level Up Advanced 5e, Tales of the Valiant, Fate Forge, whatever variant you're, you're running. Adventures. Adventures usually have so little connection to mechanics that even if they're written for a different system completely, it's usually not too hard to convert them over to whatever your 
tabletop role-playing game system is of choice. People have been doing this for decades. People have been taking old modules, running them with new mechanics. I did it recently using an adventure from 1983 with a role-playing game that came out in 2023, and I had no problem running the adventure with that. So generally speaking, converting adventures from one system to another isn't that hard. And if an adventure says it's fifth edition compatible, you can be pretty sure it'll work with any version of 5e that you've got, because generally adventures don't have a lot of mechanics. Same with campaigns. Campaign books usually are very loose in how they're written. They don't usually have a lot of hardened mechanics in them that are going to be difficult depending on what system of play you've got. Generally speaking, campaigns are going to work out. Conditions, another example of a mechanic. You can have an expectation that conditions in 5e are the expected conditions across other versions. However, some new ones are going to add some new conditions. For example, A5e offers a handful of other conditions, including like dazed and doomed and strife. So those conditions, you if you're playing with dazed and doomed and strife, you shouldn't generally expect that you're going to find another 5e product that's going to refer to those conditions. Now, there's some stuff that's questionable with compatibility. New classes. There are definitely books that have brought in new classes. Probably those classes will work well alongside whatever classes you've got operating in whatever 5e variant you happen to be running, but you shouldn't expect a lot of cross-class stuff. For example, how do spells work? If you if you pick one 5e system that isn't using like the 2014 D&D spell lists and is instead has its own, you shouldn't expect that some of those spells are going to end up on another class that they didn't even know about. So classes are going to be weird. Subclasses are going to be weird. Subclasses, not every variant of 5e handles subclasses the same way. Even 2014 and 2024 D&D seem to be operating differently in that there's going to be some kind of conversion required to take subclasses that were written for 2014 D&D to make them compatible 2024 D&D. So subclasses are one of those areas where you as a GM and you and your players are going to have to work to figure out how to take a subclass published in one material and apply it to the class that you have for whatever your system of choice is. Races, species, and ancestry. Recent books have gotten away from the idea of like a fixed race, like an elf and a dwarf and a halfling with just their stuff and that their race and their ancestry and their species and their culture are bound up in one thing and they're splitting that out. There's a book called Ancestries and Culture. That's an entire 5e supplement that takes that idea of race and breaks it out into a much wider area where you can have elves that were raised by dwarves or a human that was raised by dragonborn you can take and mix and match different traits of different species different cultures and put them together to really make your character more rich many of the more recent versions of 5e have have grabbed onto this tales of the valiant has grabbed onto this level up advanced 5e has grabbed onto this and the 2024 version of DD looks like it is also grabbing on however they're all doing it slightly differently which means that if you find a race in an old book there's not necessarily an easy way for you to understand how you're going to take that race and you're going to get it to work on whatever your version is you're going to have to do some work there so compatibility with race is going to be one of those areas it might be that one and subclasses might be the ones that you might clash with the most feats feats are being handled differently on different systems that 2014 DD and level up advanced 5e handle feats one way tales of the valiant doesn't even have feats it has another name for feats they're really the same thing but they are also meatier than a feat is that and same way with 2024 DD, the, the ones we have seen in this in the playtest right now show us that feats in 2024 DD seem to be like the equivalent of 150% of the power of a normal feat because they include a ha a, a point bump in an ability score and a feat thing. So feats are going to be an area of, of compatibility that's going to be a little mucky. And then you're going to find that all of these systems have their own individual rule systems that uh, Level Up Advanced 5e has things like supply and safe havens for handling travel and managing rests. Uh, you have the luck system from Tales of the Valiant. You're going to find 
that each of these systems wants to add in some kind of thing that makes it different. The 2024 version of D&D playtests have like a Bastion system that they include in there. You shouldn't have an expectation that these new systems that these 5e variants have are going to be backward compatible with every other product. They're not going to even know about them. So stuff like that, you're going to have to decide like which of these rule sets you're going to bring in. So why does all of this matter? This is all very complicated. My general idea is to recognize that when you see a product being 5th edition compatible or 5e compatible, you have a general expectation at a loose level that that product will be compatible with whatever version of 5e you happen to be playing. Most likely that's going to be right now the 2014 version of D&D. You might just be totally happy playing with the 2014 version of D&D sitting there at your table. That's totally fine. But now you understand that the 5 what 5e means is that even if you're playing the 2014 version of D&D, some of this stuff you could bring in and it would be compatible with it. You, you might be doing things like adding in something like ancestries and cultures to replace race in 2014 D&D. That's a degree of 5e compatibility where you grab one product and you bring it in and modify how you run. Now, an obvious one is you might take adventures or monster books or campaign settings from other publishers and use them alongside your regular 2014 version of D&D. That's probably the most common way to broach into this idea of 5e compatibility adventures monster books and campaign source books that you bring in but then you might say yeah but i do want to bring in some of these subclasses too you might have the midgard heroes book from kobold press and you want to include some of the interesting subclasses from there because you're running in a midgard game maybe you have some of the subclasses available for the tolis rpg by monty cook games you want to bring those in then you can have these entire other supplements that you bring in like uncharted journeys from cubicle 7 which adds a whole new layer of how exploration can work in your 2014 version of d What's really neat is you can completely replace the dungeon master side of 5e and your players are still fully compatible by running the 2014 version of D&D. So if they're totally wired into D&D Beyond, enjoying their lives using D&D Beyond, that's totally cool. But you can replace everything on your side with other stuff, new monsters, new exploration challenges, new adventures, new campaign stuff, new spells, new magic items, all the different aspects that you can bring in to change everything on your side of the screen, which I think is really powerful. That idea that you can bring in hundreds of different products or pieces and parts of dozens of different products and completely change out your side of how things operate on the DM side without having to change anything on the player side is really powerful. But then you also might say, hey, we want to try something new. We really like the idea of combat maneuvers. We're, we're unhappy with the fact that melee classes don't seem to be holding up to spellcasting classes using 2014 version of D&D. Well, then you want to try the combat maneuver system that exists in Level Up Advanced 5e. You can say, for this game, we're going to use the Level Up Advanced 5e Adventurer's Guide on the player side instead of the player's handbook. And now you've actually managed to kind of pull out the entire engine of 5e, and yet your players will totally recognize it because they're used to 5e. In my book, Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, I offer eight steps to help GMs prepare for their tabletop role-playing games. I don't think that these eight steps are the end-all, be-all of all tabletop prep, but I think a lot of GMs really like having a structure in front of them that helps them have the right tools at the right time to be able to build good, fun, flexible games that can go in lots of interesting ways, that can move with the way the, the players take the game, and still give you enough material prepared that you feel ready to have the game. You can find these eight steps in the free sample chapter of Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, which is available on the Sly Flourish bookstore. There is a link in the show notes. These eight steps from Return include review the characters, create a strong start, 
outline potential scenes, define secrets and clues, develop fantastic locations, outline important NPCs, choose relevant monsters, and select magic item rewards. So, and if you've watched any of my prep shows, you have seen me walk through these steps while I have been preparing for my role-playing game. I, th I now have hundreds of these videos, I think, where I have gone through these eight steps to build it out. So one of the questions I got early on was, what does it look like when you're actually building these steps out? So now I have hundreds of videos. But then the next thing was, that's great, but what does it look like when you actually use these steps at the table? And that's an interesting question. I want to thank Elizabeth at Patron of Sly Flourish for bringing this up in the Sly Flourish uh, Patreon Discord server. You too can join the Sly Flourish Patreon Discord server by becoming a patron in Sly Flourish. You get tons and tons of really awesome stuff. You get all kinds of tips and tricks for running your games, tools to help you run your games, City of Archer Sourcebook, tons of stuff. But you get to also join the Sly Flourish Discord server and have really wonderful conversations like this. And the question was, what does it look like when you're using them at the table? How do you actually manifest these eight steps while you're running while you're running the game? So I wanted to talk about what it looks like to actually use these steps at the table, how they get used. And, and they're all used in kind of different ways, but we'll talk about what those different ways are. So reviewing the characters, right? This is actually not a step where you would manifest it at your table. It's the step to help you set the baseline for all of the other seven steps. You review the characters to take the characters and bring them into your mind so that you are thinking about your secrets and clues and your scenes and your monsters and everything else from the point of view of the characters, because they are the central point of your whole game. They are the actors on the stage. They are the leading actors on the stage. So you want to know who they are, what they want, what's been going on with them, what's changed, which of them are even going to be at the game, which of ones are not going to be at the game, and kind of put that in your mind while you're doing the other steps. So this isn't really a matter of how these manifest at the table. It's more a factor of how it drives the other steps that you have. And we'll talk about some of the ways that those that, that those drive. Creating a strong start is probably the easiest one to recognize for how it relates to the table, which is you write down what is the opening scene of my game going to be. It's really the only scene that you're going to have any control over because after that, the game could go in lots of different directions. But you want to have that starting scene. And the big question to ask when you're developing your, your strong start is what happens? What is happening right now? What event is occurring? It's action-based. What's going on today? What happens? It's not a matter of setting the stage and saying, the characters are in a certain place. Now, what do you want to do? You're not turning it in. And then it's something else. I will, I will give a, an example. It's a little bit of a gory example. I have some characters in my Empire of the Ghouls game, and they are uh, in the sewers of the the city of Darakul, a ghoulish city of Darakul. You can imagine what the sewers of a ghoul city is like. Not very nice. They're stealing in, they're, they're sneaking in to a temple called the Temple of Agonizing Bliss, which is run by vampires. And they are uh, just, they're underneath the vampires. So they go there. Well, the event, and that, that, that's where we ended the session was they just saw the vent that is leading up into one of the halls of the Temple of Agonizing Bliss. So what's the strong start? I have a feeling giant gallons of blood will be poured down into the sewer. Bad blood. The blood that the vampires don't want anymore will be poured down into the sewer. That will be the event. Maybe it coagulates into like an ochre jelly, right? It's It becomes this like terrible necrotic sentient stuff and they can learn something from this. They can learn that there's like a necrotic energy flowing out of this place that's re even reanimating the blood. I think there is a blood ooze in Cobalt Press that might be a fun monster to run. That is a strong start. It is not going to be a huge battle. It's going to be one monster, probably a low challenge rating monster against a bunch of high level characters, but they will get to see it right away and learn something. Something happens. 
a big pile of blood gets poured down the, the sewers into where they are and that blood manifests into a blood ooze. They kill it and then they go on. It's just a start. That is an example of how that would be. So at the table, I will have the players say, I will ask the players, hey, what happened in last session's game? I'll let them do the recap. I'll fill in. And then once they get to the end of the recap, then I'll say, there you stand beneath the sewers of the the Temple of Agonizing Bliss. You hear this terrible crunching sound, and all of a sudden, what appears to be 50 or 60 gallons worth of blood come pouring down the vent. Everybody make like a deck saving throw. Oh, you get blood all over you, right? And then all of a sudden, you see the blood start to roll up, and it becomes, and then pseudopods start to come out. Roll for initiative. Bang, we're right into the game. That's how that manifests. Outline potential scenes. So I've described the potential scenes. This is the next step. This is step three. I've described outlining potential scenes as a way for you to kind of get your hands around what you think might happen in the game. It is not hardwired. You don't know that that's going to necessarily happen in the game. And you probably aren't going back to this during the game when you run it. This is another one to kind of just help you bound all of the things that you're getting ready for your prep. But during the game, you probably don't go back and read those scenes out. You might, if you get lost a little bit, if you don't know what was going on, or if you're offering up three choices to the characters and you want to remember what they are, then you might go back to your list and say, yeah, what were the three choices again? And you'd look at that and say, it seems like you have these three options ahead of you. So that would be how you would manifest at the table, probably at the end, but you're probably not referencing it during the game because you're on the roll while the game is going. So outlining potential scenes is not really a step that you would expect you are constantly referring to while you're running the game. Secrets and clues is the one where it's really different than almost any other kind of form of prep that you find out there. And it brings the most questions to me. It also brings the most people that say that they've, they've grabbed onto it and are having a good time. The question is like, well, how do you reveal those secrets and clues? I get this question a lot. How do you reveal the secrets and clues? I've written articles about it. You can find information about revealing secrets and clues in the Lazy DMs Companion. What is it? Just real quick. A secret and clue is basically a one sentence thing about some kind of information that the characters may discover in the next game. It could be all different kinds of things. It could be information about the boss. It could be movement of the various villains and what they're doing. It could be a bit of history. It could be something involving the characters. It could be any kind of information that you think is useful or interesting to the players that you can drop in. And the key is you are not defining where they find it. You get to drop in those secrets and clues depending on where they go, what they explore. It's a way for you to improvise information as the characters are exploring the game. Now, so that means that the way this manifests at the table is just as varied as all of the different ways that the characters might learn the the, so an example is if they're talking to an NPC, you might skim read your, your secrets and clues and figure out which of those secrets make sense for this NPC that the characters are talking to, and then have the NPC give up that piece of information. Maybe it's after making a particular kind of check, or maybe the, the NPC just gives it up. Maybe the characters are exploring an area and they see a mosaic on the wall. I use this example a lot. They're exploring a dungeon. You see a colorful mosaic behind cobwebs. I use this in my game myself. You see there's a bunch of cobwebs. You go and you see a mosaic on the wall, and from the mosaic you pick out that these two gods actually used to be a couple but then one god made a terrible decision and the other god broke up with them and you can get this from the mosaic right and now you've got like a couple of secrets and clues that you check off because they learned it from looking at the mosaic they could pick up a magic item maybe they see some runes on the magic item they read it and the runes tell the story of a certain thing that could be a secret and clue maybe the magic item is intelligent and it tells them about something that's a secret and clue they check it off piece of jewelry that they find brings up a piece of history you 
have them roll a history check. They roll the check. They succeed. They learn one of the secrets and clues. So it can manifest in lots of different ways. But you are, unlike scenes, which you're not really referencing during the game, secrets and clues is something that you would want to have in front of you and that you would be regularly referencing to ask yourself, are any of these clues relevant to anything that the characters are doing right now? Your expectation with secrets is that you're not revealing all of them, though. We have 10 because you want to have enough to know that you have enough to run a game. Not You're not expected to run all of them. Maybe I do about half. Usually about five secrets get explored. Then the next session, I mix and match my secrets and clues to figure that out. Develop fantastic locations. Again, this, the type of game you're running is going to tell you how fantastic locations manifest. If you are doing a dungeon crawl, for example, in my next Empire of the Ghouls game, I'm doing a dungeon crawl. They're going through the Temple of Agonizing Bliss. So for me, preparing fantastic locations means getting a map of the location, taking out a pen or a Sharpie, and writing on one-sentence descriptions for each of the rooms that I think they might explore. Then I have that map in front of me. As the characters move, I can tell them what's there. So for me, my fantastic, uh, my fantastic location prep is a list of the places that they may see in front of me, either on a map directly or maybe a bullet item list in my notes that tell me the different places and give me just enough information on, the, on that thing that I can then improvise other things that they might find there. I don't, I don't usually fill them out with a ton of detail. I usually only put two or three words that's just enough. I might say alchemical lab. And then alchemical, that tells me it's an alchemical lab. And then I'm usually able to come up like, oh, there's beakers and there's weird copper tubes and stuff. And it looks very flammable, right? Stuff like that. You might also develop fantastic locations if you have more of an exploratory game or a game where they're going through a city. You might have a bigger description of a fewer number of places. And the way that would operate is when they get there, you would look at your notes and you'd say, oh, they're at the, the big bank. So what are the three aspects of the bank? Well, it has giant golden vault doors. It has huge statues of the people who forged the bank. And it's got iron, you know, iron protectors and iron traps that are around there. So then you use those to kind of improvise your discussion and your description of what the place is like. The players ask you questions and you can respond by the notes that you have there. But again, the expectation is that you're not keeping a lot of information for fantastic locations. So that's how that manifests at the table uh important npcs you don't know which npcs are going to really come up but you might have a couple of big ones so you write down the npc i usually the main thing i look for is a name the name is the one aspect that i'm going to forget all the time so i want to have that name in front of me i want to have it solid if they meet a new npc and i improvise an npc i need to write them down because i will forget that name and i will break the connection of reality with the players if i can't remember the name of the guy they just Invented. It takes this ethereal concept, makes it solid, and then makes it ethereal again. So that's not good. Write names down. From that name, I usually can just kind of you know improvise the rest. I'm I'm actually pretty. I think I'm pretty good. I'm I'm happy enough with my own skills, and my players keep coming to my table that I don't really feel like I'm I'm deficient in this. I'm pretty good about role playing NPCs with just a name. I think about what their motivation is. I can usually improvise that. Like, what would this person want? And I say, well, this is what they kind of want. Mannerisms, I just sort of go with the flow. I've, I've offered different ideas for like taking an archetype from a movie. If you, if you want to be like, oh, I'm going to be like, you know, Kathy Bates and, and Fried Green Tomatoes is going to be one of my heroines. You can do that and that works really well. Sometimes you just kind of riff off of it. If you want more, you can do more. If you have more trouble with NPCs, you can put more details in there about the kinds of things. What are the important things? I would definitely say like, you know, keep it brief and keep it specific. So then when they meet that NPC, you might look at your notes and say, what are the important things that I need to get a, this NPC to come across? Now, remember, you don't need to tie your secrets and clues to NPCs, which means you can have anything that that NPC might know. You don't have to write it down because you already have it in secrets and clues, and it might not be that NPC who tells it characters. Choosing relevant monsters. 
If you are expecting to have combat or have situations where they're fighting hostile monsters, what I like to do is I write down the names of the monsters that I think might show up and I write a page number down or I link to a reference so that I can easily look up that monster stat block. And I don't really do much more than that. I don't really figure out exactly how many are going to be there. I don't work about battlefield tactics. I don't set up rooms with tokens and get everything prepared ahead of time because I don't know if they're going to go there. So I just list out the monster. I put the page number down. During the game, the way this manifests is I will look down and say, oh, this is the room where you're going to fight the blood ooze, right? The big nasty blood icker. So if you're fighting the animated blood icker, my animated blood icker is on page 292 of, of the creature codex. I look, I find it. I open a page 292. I find the stat block. Sometimes it might be more detailed than that. If you have like a great big set piece battle with boss monsters and stuff, then I might list out like how many monsters, what their stat blocks are. I don't usually write down like a lot of tactics because I'm a, I'm not really good at tactics. I don't really run tactics. I don't for my games, this could be controversial and it's opinionated and you might totally disagree. I don't really worry about tactics on the monster side because I don't think the players care. I think the players care about their tactics and they're doing monsters are really there to like pile stuff on and make a challenge for the characters. That's not true for everybody. Some DMs really like the tactics of it. I used to in the fourth edition days. I don't so much anymore. So I don't really worry about the tactics. I will put interesting challenges in there. I'll have brutes up front. I'll have spellcasters in the back. I'll put guys in hard to reach places, whatever. I'll do all that kind of stuff. But I don't really worry too much about like writing down the turn by turn tactics of like what the monsters are going to do. I don't really find that very useful. So for me, the real big one is referencing the monster stat blocks. Like where, what are the, where can I find that monster stat block? So when it's time for me to find that monster, I can bring it out of the table. And that's what I look at when I'm actually at the table. I look and I go, oh, they're going to deal with some vampire spawn. What page is the vampire spawn? Vampire page spawn is on uh, Monsters Menagerie page, whatever. I open the menagerie and I got my vampire spawn. Or I'm going to say, oh, they're, they're fighting the vampire priestess queen, right? The high priestess of the vampires, the matron mother of vampires. I'm probably going to reskin the, the, the boss vampire from Flea Mortals. That's on page whatever. And so I, I have Flea Mortals book. I have page whatever, and I can look it up. So that's how, I, that's how I use that at the table. Selecting magic item rewards. I usually have a bullet list of different magic parcels. I might do two or three different parcels. Usually they're horde level parcels. I have a random generator that I use. It's a uh, tool for patrons of Sly Flourish where you can generate them but you can also use tools like level up advanced 5e's trials and treasure to generate a treasure parcel you can use the 2014 dungeon master's guide but i usually get a couple of treasure parcels and there's a lot of good online tools to build treasure parcels i usually put two or three in there and then when it makes sense that the characters would find treasure i can just go to the parcel and like a secret and clue i can drop it in where i want so i use that in the game by saying ah they just beat a boss or they just opened up a treasure vault or there's some other reason why there would be some treasure here i can go to that parcel and sometimes i'll split the parcel up maybe if they kill the guy it's not likely he's got twelve thousand gold pieces on him but maybe he does have that one seventy five hundred gold piece gem hanging from a lanyard around his neck so i might pick pieces of a treasure parcel that the characters pick up because i'm not too bent about making sure that they get everything in the parcel all of this comes down to keeping a loose grip on how things go. We are using the eight steps in order to kind of get the stuff in front of us that we wouldn't want to try to roll up or come up with during the game, but we aren't deciding exactly how that stuff is going to play out. We do not do like sequential lists of scene one, scene two, scene three, scene four with all of the stuff in it, because I don't know that that's where that's going to go. I don't know if they're going to take a left turn. So instead, I like to think about the eight steps is we take all of these things that would come out in scene one, two, three, and four, and we 
shatter it out into its individual pieces. So we have treasure, monsters, NPCs, locations, secrets. We have all this stuff separated out. And then from these little dishes, we can then bring them together and build them out at the table. They are pre-prepared. They're like pre-cooked food being brought out to your hibachi grill, right? We, we have all of this stuff ready to go. We know what monsters we're going to think about. We have the page numbers for them. We don't have to go look them up. We have our treasure. We already rolled up the treasure. We know what we have going in there. We know what NPCs we've got. We know what secrets and clues we've got. We know we have all these things. And now we get to decide how to mash that up together for the particular game that's happening at the table. So I hope this is a useful way at looking at how the eight steps can manifest at your table. If you have not heard of this kind of stuff before, please check out Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. You can find Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master at the Sly Flourish bookstore. You can find a link to that in the show notes. Every month on the Sly Flourish Patreon, we run the Sly Flourish Patreon Q&A. Any patron can ask any TTRPG-related question. I answer every question every Friday morning. I get, my, I get my coffee, and I come down to my beautiful office, and I sit here, and I go through all the questions. It's very relaxing and a lot of fun. And some of those questions I bring here to talk about on the show. Other ones become actual catalysts for new articles, new newsletters, or new videos on their own. Today, we're going to cover a few more questions. Event Horizon says, I'm currently rethinking my dungeon location design philosophy. I have always focused heavily on combat, placing a combat encounter in about 70% of the rooms. Recently, I've begun designing them inversely by filling only 30% of the location with combat and the rest with interactive elements. I know that each group is different and that you can't make everyone happy, but do you have any broad rule of thumb regarding the amount of combat focus in a location? Great question, obviously, or I would not have brought it to the show, but really, thank you for this question. The the answer is I don't I don't have a set ratio. I believe and I've talked about this before. I believe in understanding what the beats are of what's the current pacing and what are the beats like. And when I'm talking about beats, what I'm talking about is like high beats and low beats. Good things happen and bad things happen and good things happen and bad things happen. Now, when I say a bad thing, I don't mean characters dying. A bad thing could be getting in a big fight that's going to burn a lot of resources. Even if you're victorious, it was still tiring. It's tiring to the players. If they go in a two and a half hour fight or an hour long fight or an hour and a half long fight, the players are a little tired by this. It was really fun and they loved it, I'm sure, but they're still a little tired. If you do another hour fight right after that those are two downward beats an upward beat is finding one drunk bandit who's trying to rob you and your other 11 11 character friends and he's so confident in his sword master skills that he's gonna that he's gonna beat it i had a noble who got insulted by one of the characters because he thought his wife was hitting on the character and he's like i'm gonna duel i i demand a duel and it's, it's literally like a CR one-fourth noble. And the character is like a level 15 swashbuckler, like a rogue. And the, the, he just goes, and just knocks it on his ass. The guy says, like, I wasn't ready. And he's like, really? You're going to do this again? And, you know, and then there was this wonderful scene. And they're like, and then some guy's like, he's a noble. He's paying our bills, man. Like, let him win. And so he's like, I try to, you know. And it was this really fun scene that was kind of combat, but also like not. That's an up beat so i think heavily about the beats that are going on in a game and i don't when i build out my dungeons i don't say exactly what's in every room instead i'd say what the room looks like and maybe in my head i have some ideas about what kind of creatures might be going around there but i don't actually decide what's in a room until the game is going on and it could be the circumstances in the situation that define who's in a room or what monsters are in a room or it could be based on whether or not i feel like what kind of pacing i think it's time for a good fight so i think they're going to fight some you know the, the example i bring up i bring it up in, in return of the lazy dungeon master is sometimes you open a door and it's three 
drunken hobgoblins. Two of them are passed out and one of them is busy robbing the other two. Or you open it up and there's 24 hobgoblins working on their phalanx techniques, right? With a drill sergeant that's telling him, you know, and there's, there's a difference between what those two situations are going to be like. And there might be a time where it's really fun to walk in on the hobgoblins are doing the phalanx techniques who have been waiting for the characters to show up so that they can use their shields to block each other or the three drunken hobgoblins. So, you know, different ways that you could do it. But I, I don't have a set element, but you are definitely on the right track with the idea of only filling in 30% because you can always fill in the other 70% with other stuff. I would even challenge you to not fill in any of them and instead have general ideas about what kinds of things might happen in any given room and then improvise what happens in those rooms as the characters are exploring it. That's probably what I would do. It is what I do in my own games and it's what I recommend. You can still prep what kind of monsters are going around and what situations are happening there. You can still figure that part of it out, but you can still move things around. Or you could say like, no, I'm still going to have like, you know, I know that there's three mimics in this room. Like I've definitely done that, but I usually only like fill out a room right before I know that the characters are going to bother to wander in that room. Otherwise I tend not to fill in rooms that I don't know the characters are going to go to. Really good question. Thank you for that. Alex W says, I'm a forever DM who has only ever experienced the blessing curse of running games with my groups who have never played TTRPG before. That's really cool. I want to be as welcoming as possible, but I can't ever get anyone to take the time to read the rule book. And I feel like it's really holding us back, especially with complex things like traveling and leveling up and spellcasting. Do you require your players to read the handbook? Should I? Or is it worth just pushing forward and keeping it rules light? At what point is it their responsibility to spend their own time reading the rules? really good question and you're going to get lots of different opinions from me and you ask me so i'm going to give you my opinion but i guarantee you you're going to get everything from it's the player's responsibility to read the rules kick them out if they don't that'd be on one side too dude in our you know social media phone age no one reads anyway so you're you're going to get what you get and you're going to get that far extreme i think it is certainly worthwhile to talk to your players and, and ask them to at least read the sections of their characters like you know spend that time Ask them, ask them to do so, but recognize that they might not always do it. If you find that there are players who are being really laissez-faire about it and it's hindering the game, it could be worth spending some time outside and asking them. I'm really lucky that the players that I have are pretty, they, 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 they definitely read their stuff. But in my recent games where I've been bringing in a lot of different books, some books that only I own, I can't have the expectation they're going to read it because they're there at the table. So they don't always have everything. So I, I, I would, I would go with a degree of flexibility you, you can do a little bit of both. Talk to them about the benefits of reading the section. If you find them getting hung up on like spell descriptions and other things, there are things you can do to recommend them. Like, please, please read your spells. I will, I will let you know when your turn is coming up. If you have an idea about what you're going to cast, please go read the book on what you're going to cast. A lot of times I'll see players that, that want to cast a spell and they only know half the spell. They don't really know. Like I'll say something like, well, how many targets is that? Or is that last a full round? Or is, is that only last to the end of next turn? Or is that a save at the end of every turn or none? And they're like, oh, I don't know. And they have to go look it up. So it definitely is worth like, like reading up in the book but i would recognize that like also like there's a degree of certainly certain players are bringing different amounts of their energy and their effort to the game and we have to be conscious of that too we're almost always pouring more effort into the game than players are almost always and we have to recognize that for some they just want to go there and hang out with their friends and they're not really looking to like read a textbook so we have to kind of play that by ear but i, I think it is worthwhile I, do i require it no would i suggest it absolutely would i offer them suggestions like hey whenever you put down a power or a spell write the page number down to the book so you can look it up easy like that's my one of my you know short of take notes during the game 
that's like my number two suggestion for players is when you're when you're putting your character options on your sheet write down write down your page numbers but i think we have to be flexible with it and i think if you are going to ask players if you can ask particular players meet them one-on-one talk to them talk try to talk them in person or on voice or in video and tell them the importance of reading the book and how that will help make the whole game better dan m says a question regarding puzzles i love puzzles Spoiler, I don't love puzzles. I'm not necessarily a big puzzle guy. Neither am I. But I see the value and fun they can pose for players. I bet they're not as fun as you think. How do you balance player versus character knowledge when, as a group, they try to solve the puzzle? For example, for instance, a character might be a barbarian with a negative modifiers on int and whiz, but the player playing the barbarian might solve it at the table. For the story, does it make sense that the DM, the dim-witted tanks, solved an intricate puzzle, or do you measure their attempts with DC-based skill checks for hints and or successes? I would use the better of either in other words if they if the player succeeds on the puzzle i don't care that their character had an int of eight they still succeeded and and it's up to them to role play why they were good are they an idiot savant right are they are they just really good at this kind of thing maybe just turns out that there's or they lucked into it they stumbled and bumped into it and then the puzzle goes i think it could be really fun to have characters that don't have the stats succeeded a puzzle because the player did likewise i would not make players solve it themselves when they could roll a check and succeed so that way you have two possible solutions to the puzzle one they actually figure it out two they roll well and figure it out but it still brings up the problem with puzzles overall. I have, I've, you know, I'm thinking of my puzzle soapbox, but real quick, one issue I have with puzzles is why is the puzzle even there in the first place, right? Like, again, I'll pick on Baldur's Gate 3. Baldur's Gate 3 has a scene where you go to a bank vault and they're like, oh, it's this super secret vault. Nobody can get in here. All you have to do is step on these nine tiles in the right order and the vault door opens. And you're like, who puts a bank vault where you can step on tiles and open it? How about a key? How about magical protections, right? Why, why would you have, I said like, it's like locking your door with a Sudoku, right? Like who's going to put a Sudoku on their front door and be like, oh, nobody can get in here. Oh crap. Someone figured the Sudoku out and came and took my TV, right? Like that's just dumb. So a lot of times when you're hiding something behind a puzzle, it just doesn't make sense. It's rare for a puzzle to match the story that's going on the game, which is why I'm not crazy about it. But also they're, they're, they can also, also be kind of railroady that you have to solve the puzzle in order to move the story forward. Now you could do things like, well, how about you just bash it, right? Just break the door down with a big hammer, right? Or, you know, you get other information or you have a successful DC check, but it's pretty easy for a puzzle to end up as a, as a roadblock when they roll. Cause what if they players don't figure it out as a puzzle and they roll crappy on their DC checks? Now, what do you do? Right, is the game over? They die, they all starve to death? Like what happens? So puzzles are tough and, and having an alternative, even a third alternative to those two as another way. Oh, it turns out there's a secret door on the right and it bypasses the whole room. Like what is another way for them to get around a puzzle is a, is a good question. But the answer to your specific question on what if you have characters that aren't trained in the skills or aren't particularly good at the skills and they succeed because the player succeeded. Yes. And I think it could be really fun for them to role play that. And then could you also have players succeed by having their characters roll a DC and succeed? Yes, you could do that. So you can do the, either of those two. That way you are benefiting it slightly by offering two different alternatives, one, an out of game alternative and one, an in game alternative. I would challenge you to have a third alternative, like finding a key from in somewhere else or finding another secret passage that bypasses this whole thing. What is the third way they can get around this puzzle is the thing that I would recommend. Friends, 
I want to thank all of you for hanging out with me today while we talked about all things in tabletop role-playing games. If you enjoyed this show and you like the work that I do, the best way to keep up with all of the stuff that I do is to subscribe to this Life Flourish newsletter. It is absolutely free to sign up. All you do is give me your email address and you will get a weekly RPG-related email sent directly to your inbox every Tuesday morning and you will get a free adventure generator PDF again totally free you can also sign up for the Sly Flourish Patreon it's a very low price but you get lots of really great stuff tools to help you run your game the City of Arches source book a dedicated discord server the monthly Q&A tons of stuff you get for becoming a patron of Sly Flourish and it helps me put on all these shows and you can pick up any of my books including Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master the Lazy DM's workbook Lazy DM's Companion Forge of Foes the fantastic books t-shirts calendars coffee cups all kinds of stuff you get in the Sly Flourish bookstore so thank you all very much have a great day and get out there and play in our PG.